your cultural competence. Listen to interesting stories. Learn about the cultural pitfalls and how to avoid them. Get the global perspective here at Culture Matters Podcast on International Business. We help you understand cultural diversity better by interviewing real people with real experiences, helping you develop your cultural competence. This episode's guest is John Alexander. He is an Australian cultural consultant, lecturer and writer who has lived in the UK, the Netherlands and currently is living in Sweden. It's time for this week's guest at the Culture Matters podcast. Here's your host, Chris Smith. Good morning or good afternoon or good evening. That's to the audience and to John Alexander. Uh, it's a very good afternoon. It's 1.30 in the afternoon on February 26th. It's a Tuesday, 2013. That's the recording date of this Culture Matters podcast. Good afternoon, John. Good afternoon, Chris. How are you? I'm fine today, actually. It's been a, we've got a, a nice bit of winter weather at the moment. Ah, okay. So tell us, tell the audience a bit uh, where you're located. And I'm making this uh, recording is usually done by my end from uh, from Belgium at this moment uh, at the sea. I'm looking at the coast, and there's a surfer actually making his way into the waves at this moment. <laughs> Awkward, and it's, it's typically if you uh, consider the weather right here. So it's around freezing, and it's very hazy, and this is a very much of a daredevil. But you have some nice winter. Wintry weather there. Wintry weather. It's about minus five. The, the, the ground is still covered with snow. I'm, I'm living in a, in a classical kind of Swedish house, which means it's a it's a red painted cottage with white uh, with with uh, white trimmings. Mm -hmm. And a few minutes walk down to the sea, which is frozen solid at the moment. Sea is frozen solid. Yes, this is again. And if I walk far enough east, I'll, I'll end up in Finland. So I'm right on the Baltic. Ah, okay, that's nice. I've never seen the frozen sea in my life before. <laughs> Uh, uh, I tell you, coming to Australia here, that was my first culture shock because I didn't think the sea could freeze up, but now I discover it does it every year. And it actually can. And and okay, you mentioned the 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 other word, which is the Australian word. You are an Australian living in Sweden. That's right. Yes. How's that? Tell us a little bit about what you do and and how you ended up in Sweden, and because you've been there for some time. Because I think you might even speak the language as well. Oh, yes, well, in fact, I, I started learning Swedish even in Australia. We had an extremely attractive Swedish teacher, so perhaps that was a, a good incentive at the time. Excellent. But, um, uh, I was also studying Icelandic, so I've always been interested in Nordic culture. Yeah. Um, then uh, I, I was working in Australia as a journalist. I worked in radio and then television. Mm -hmm. And uh, as many Australians started traveling and uh, some of us end up going back and some of us still keep traveling. And um, I settled in the UK for a while. I was working in publishing. Yeah. And uh, that got me traveling actually all around Europe. And so uh, I know pretty much every bookshop in Belgium as well as um, every bookshop in the Netherlands and France and Germany and, of course, in the Nordic countries. All right, excellent. And and um, just in in the introduction, when we uh, were, were chatting a bit without uh, before I hit the record button, um, I thought you were British, and then you said, "No, I'm from Australia." Where? What happened to your accent? Well, it's still there. I, I think, uh, you know, when I'm talking to family and old friends, of course, the Australian accent comes back. And I find this is quite common with many people that are, uh, are culturally removed a little bit, that there is, um, once you get back into that frame, it's very easy to fall back into, mm. into uh, old accents. I can, I can imagine. So should I call you mate? Or is that the, <laughs> yeah. that the thing? That We're all mates true? in Australia. Yes. That's, we always sit in the front of a taxi. That's another thing I learned about Australia. Ah, okay. That's another cultural difference, maybe. Well, 
it was actually an American friend that pointed that out. And I realized that a lot of these cultural differences, you know, because I always think of Australia as pretty normal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we always think our own cultural background is normal. Yeah. And that's why we often need people from other cultural backgrounds to say, well, well, no, you're a bit odd, you know. And like this American guy said, he thinks, oh, I have a theory about why all you Australians get in the front of a taxi. And I never really even thought about it. And, he, and his theory was that, well, you're all mates. Isn't that right? And I, and I said, <laughs> so, because uh, in England, you get in the back of a taxi. Yeah, absolutely. It's very strange if you, if you get in front. Uh, yes, yeah, so it would be a bit too, bit too friendly, wouldn't it, I think? Yeah, I guess, yeah, at first instance, I guess, yeah. What is it you do uh, in Sweden, John? Now I'm running a lot of courses in uh, intercultural uh, intercultural communication skills, leadership skills. Um, uh, I, I have a, a background in storytelling. My academic background is in the subject of narratology, which is all about storytelling. Yeah. And uh, what I often, a lot of my seminars are begin with the cultural diversity as a kind of step one, and then looking for the unifying factor, which I call like the corporate narrative. If you're working with people in, say, one organization or a company, and they're all from different cultural backgrounds, mm-hmm. well, the process is to think, well, what are those cultural differences? And then how do we bring them together under, like, a unifying umbrella, which would be, like, what's our, what's our common story? And can, can you give an example of that? Well, many companies. Um, Scania is a good place to start because I think Scania is a marvelous Swedish company and they really represent a lot of um, um, aspects that one might say is, is typical for the Swedish style of management and leadership. What, what is Scania? Uh, but, uh, Scania is, sorry to interrupt. What, just for the audience, what is Scania kind of company? They make trucks, I think. For trucks, and, yes, and recently um, um, merged with MAN in Germany. So that's another process that Scania will be going through but um, it's an extremely culturally diverse company so that when we bring people together from many different parts of the world and that includes the Eastern Europe and Latin American countries, uh, Australia, um, it's a matter of defining, well, what is it that is part of Scania that we can say is not just Swedish, but mm-hmm. part of corporate identity mm-hmm. that enables us to like, yes, we can all be part of that culture. And um, I think in the Scania is just one example where I think that works very well. You know, you can't just say it's a Swedish company, it's international, and yet it still maintains a lot of those values that one would associate with okay. things. Is, is, is that, are you, com, are you are you then talking about a combination in a way of organizational culture and national cultural differences? Precisely, and even regional cultural differences, because I, I think that's another important aspect. Um, one of the things I've discovered is that uh, I work a lot with like Nordic um, Nordic companies, and and often it's um, if if people are setting out to say do business in China or Africa, well you do a lot of homework because you know it's going to be very different. Mm-hmm. But I found this. I, I was also based in the Netherlands for a while, and I, and I found similar things say between. Dutch and Belgians and French that that often you think your neighbors are so similar that it's not going to be a problem. But it's often because of that proximity that the problems arise. For example, the Nordic countries, um, Swedish companies think, oh, we're going to be cooperating with the Finns or the Norwegians. That's easy. We know each other very well. And then within six months, there's all sorts of problems simply because there hasn't been any preparation in really looking at some of those cultural differences. 
And um, they might be small, but because they've been ignored, they end up becoming very big. Yeah. And so, so what you're saying is, is that uh, there is some similarity within the, the Scandinavian countries, Norway, mm. Sweden, Denmark, Finland, I guess. That's if you draw a circle around that. But right. still, there are enough differences to sort of get in the way. Very, very definitely. <clears throat> and, and now, of course, a lot of um, doing uh, last few years, a lot of the work has been in the Baltic and, and perhaps even more so in, in, you know, people refer to the Baltics, you know, it's like it's just one region. Yeah. But of course, if you're from Estonia or Latvia or Lithuania, you're extremely aware, and particularly in the last, you know, 15 years or so, um, most conscious of creating a sense of cultural identity. Yeah. So it's a very risky business just to kind of refer to the Nordics or the Baltics. In one sentence, in one breath. Exactly. Yeah. There's an example of that just uh, a couple of weeks ago, The Economist, which is uh, usually a magazine I, I, I hold in very high esteem, but yeah. they actually had a, a whole article where they referred to uh, the Nordic as the new supermodel. And I was reading through it and I thought, but what do they mean by Nordic? Yeah. Because I can refer to like the Swedish management style and particularly when you're sitting down at the negotiating table, you know, there's decision-making processes that are quite typical, say, in Denmark, but mm. quite different in, in Sweden or in Norway or in Finland. Yeah. So the idea of like a Nordic model is something I, I, I can understand that they're looking at those similarities. But when you're actually living in the Nordic region, it's a rather difficult or rather uneasy generalization. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I agree with you on that for sure. And I think any newspaper and The Economist is no exception is not cannot be culturally neutral. I mean, it's it, sometimes The Economist is, is bashing the, uh, the Germans and then the French. They cannot get away from their own cultural perspective. And I think they also don't really mind that either. Right. No, it, it, of course. And again, we come back to what is it that makes a good story. And, you know, to be able to put a nice headline on, oh, everyone should be looking at the Nordic region, if that's part of the story. I was thinking, Chris, something that you mentioned as well, because I know we're both interested in, in the, the whole, whole idea of cultural dimensions. And we have people like Hofstede and Trompenars. And interestingly enough, they all seem to be from your part of the world. But um, one of the problems, I think Hofstede is very good in terms of using, creating a vocabulary mm -hmm. in which we can get away or biased ways of defining culture. You know, it helps us avoid the stereotyping. But one of the problems is that when you're dealing in regions like, say, the Nordic countries or the Baltic, is that you look at the dimensions of Hofstede or, say, Trumpenars, and you'll find that, oh, but according to Hofstede, all the Nordic countries are very similar. And that region is very similar. It's a little bit like the Eurovision Song Contest. Yeah, it's true. I agree. It, the way I explain it to um, to uh, participants in, when I'm running a workshop is, is that uh, I think, yes, um, you can compare. Uh, and comparing is something different than saying they're identical. You can compare... Norway, Sweden, Denmark, Finland, and the Netherlands as well. I mean, the Dutch are are, are actually a Scandinavian country with a, with an awkward geographical position in a way. Uh -huh. And I think they're very comparable, again, not identical, but comparable to somebody who does not come from that region. Right. So in other words, if an Australian like yourself at very first instance would do business with either a Dutchman or a, a Dutch organization or a Swedish organization, you right. would, I think you would be uh, surprised by the level of consensus seeking that's going on in both cultures. 
Yes, but interestingly enough, I, I was talking about this with a Dutch colleague. He'd been based in Sweden for six months, and we were talking about that because I also had I had I was three years based in the Netherlands. I was living in Harlem, and I absolutely loved it. Yeah. But um, I was thinking too. There's many similarities between, say, Dutch and Swedish approach. But we we're talking about the differences because we both agreed that the consensus seeking is part of that. Yeah. But he defined it like this, and I thought it was very apt. He said that in in the Netherlands we have a hard style of consensus. In other words, we sit at the table and we really argue out issues. Yeah. Whereas in Sweden, he described it as a soft consensus. And I think that's true because consensus in Sweden is always managed without getting into confrontations or conflicts, which amazes people from outside Sweden. You think, well, how did you do that? You know, you sat around the table, everybody agreed, and there were no arguments. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't think, I know from my experience in the Netherlands, uh, arguing was a good part of the process in quite a healthy way. Um, but even in Denmark, that's quite different. I mean, in, in many respects, uh, the Danish approach is quite similar to, to what you find in the Netherlands in terms of being quite open about being confrontational. And the directness with it. The directness, exactly. Yeah. We often talk about context and culture, high and low contexts. And the interesting thing is we often think of the, the whole of Northern Europe as being very low context, mm -hmm. that Germanic kind of language, and you say what you mean, yes means yes, no means no. And if you mean, if you say, you know, 10 past 10, you mean 10 past 10. Yeah. Um, in Sweden, there's a, it's not quite so simple as that. It's an extremely polite language. And this is why I come back to language and stories as a very important part of the cultural, uh, the overall picture. Mm -hmm. and, um, and there's a process in Sweden, talking about how you get consensus. In Swedish, it's called forankering. You know, it comes from the word like an anchor. Yeah. Where you um, you know, sort of stabilize your boat. Yeah. And I was asking people, well, how do you do this? And they say, well, there's several sort of corporate rituals or institutions in Sweden that you really don't find elsewhere. Um, uh, one is, I don't, have, you, have you been working in Sweden at all yourself, Chris? I've been a couple of times to Stockholm and I've worked with a number of Swedes and up in, in uh, I've been to Lapland as well. So well, there you go. Lapland, that's another story. I can tell you some stories from there, but there oh, please. you go. Yeah, please but, do so. but you probably experienced this wonderful Swedish uh, cultural ritual of the Fika Pals. Do you remember the Fika Pals? Um, help me out a bit. It's where you sit down and have a cup of coffee, right? Now, in the Netherlands, everyone has a cup of coffee, but you're working at the same time. Yeah. Now, in Sweden, you have like a break, maybe 20 minutes or half an hour sometimes, to have a cup of coffee and the informal conversation. And this is very important. And a lot of companies, and I mentioned Scania, Scania is one of them, but I think virtually every Swedish company will even have a weekly, what they call the weekly fika. Sometimes it's Monday morning, sometimes it's Friday afternoon or Thursday, but where everybody comes together and sits at the fika board, you know, the coffee table in the fika room, because you have a special room where you have your cup of coffee and always like, you know, the typical Danish, uh, Swedish pastries. And you have this informal conversation, often work-related, but in an informal way, where everybody is treated in the same way. You know, there's no kind of who's the boss or... Yeah. And, and I think it's this process that enables people, at, when it comes to making decisions, to actually avoid all the confrontations because they've been talked about. This is the franking process, you know, Excellent. that people have had a chat about, will you give me support on this particular issue? And they say, yes, I think I can support you on that. And everybody agrees with each other. In a very uh, soft way, soft consensus-seeking way. Mm, yeah. Mm. Excellent. Um, um, thank you for, for, for enlightening us with these kind of examples. That's, I think that's exactly uh, what the audience is looking for. Um, I, 
the question with bringing and bridging this uh, the, the subject you were talking about when was your first memorable encounter with another culture being Australian goodness that's a tough one I can tell you actually it was probably when I was about 10 years old oh. and it was the first time I met an Australian Aborigine oh. and uh, I grew up in a really small part of Uh, Australia in Victoria called Sassafras. It's up in the mountains. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a place where all the tourists from Melbourne would come up at weekends, you know, because we, we have beautiful nature and you see the wallabies and the wombats. But we had a tourist shop in a, in a neighboring township. And there was a guy there called Bill, and he was this Aboriginal guy. Now, not, you know, there's not that many Aboriginal people in Australia, and mm -hmm. particularly Victoria. But after school, we'd start chatting with him, and, and he was an absolutely lovely guy. And he actually taught me how to throw a boomerang, which is a skill I have to this very day. Really? I'm does, glad. does it actually work, throwing a boomerang? <laughs> yes, and I've seen people in parks in Sweden when they throw a boomerang, and they think they can actually catch it with one hand. And I have to go up to them and say, look, <laughs> that's not, and this is what Bill, the Aboriginal guy in Belgrave, taught me. Yeah. If you make sure it spins around, then you catch it with both hands and you slap it together. Otherwise, you cut your hand off. Yeah, yeah. It's a weapon, huh? It was exactly, but it was. There's an interesting example. I haven't thought about that for years. But what a wonderful example of you know learning from other cultures. Absolutely, excellent. Ex thanks for sharing that. Um, as an Australian, you've been out of the country for long numbers of years, many years. Mm. Yeah. What is it that? What is the pain and double question? What is the pain and joy you get out of working with with different cultures? Yeah, pain and joy. That's interesting. Again, in, in Sweden, we have this concept of moderation with all things. So pain and joy, it sounds so extreme, you know, but we often talk about um, learning curves. And I think that first time you come to a new culture, that feeling of exhilaration, you know, that, oh, everything's different and it's exciting. And uh, But if you're – because I think there's a big difference in, say, traveling to different countries regularly on short and short term. Mm -hmm level or actually resettling somewhere where you're going to be somewhere for, say, six months or a year. And um, when you're resettling, then you really have to be prepared for this, you know, the mood curves. Yeah. Uh, you begin in a very positive way, but there's a real risk that you can, once you get into the routine of daily life, that you can end up being quite depressed because you, there are things you don't know, you don't really fit in. And uh, That's culture I, shock you're talking about. Eh? A, I, I don't like the word shock because it's not usually shocking. It's usually a process in, in, in which you uh, feel, you suddenly ask yourself, what am I doing here, you know? And, <laughs> and, um, and I remember experiencing that when I was in Japan because I, I'd really prepared myself for my stay in Japan. Uh, I'd learned Japanese and immersed myself in Japanese literature and, and cinema and culture and uh, And there, there's so many things about Japanese culture I really appreciate, food, everything. And, and yet after a month, you know, I was just realizing I, I, I felt just so much like an outsider, I, you know, the, the typical gaijin, you know. And that, and that was that was tough. But um, but then you come back over that and, and realize well, that's part of the learning experience. And then you move on. Yeah, I think it's, it's my own experience with working with Japanese and in Japan as well is that for me, It's one of the most difficult cultures to work with. It's certainly the most different, isn't it? Which, which by the way, which doesn't say anything about the Japanese. So this is not no, about the no. judgment, just making sure. No, not at all. Uh, but I was also surprised. And I think all, all, all of us are that come to Japan uh, because I didn't experience that in China in quite the same way. Mm. Um, you know, I think China has been, I don't know, adapting over the decades to a more Western approach perhaps. But in Japan, there is such a strong sense of cultural identity. Yeah. 
Very much. And, and such a strong that, uh, feeling for rituals as well and, and, yes. and ceremony and, uh, and formality. Yes. And, and I met actually some Australian friends in Japan that had been living there for 10 years and, and their Japanese was perfect. And, um, you know, they'd really immersed themselves in the culture. And they said, and you know what happened to us? I said, what was that? They said, we've been completely cut off by the Japanese. <laughs> and I said, how do you mean? They said, well, they can never trust us now because, you know, our Japanese is, uh, is so fluent and uh, we know Japanese culture so well that they think of it, you know, we're no longer welcome within. You within might be considered a spy, as a spy. Yeah. Exactly. You know, you sort of un, you uncovered too many of our, the secrets of our culture. Yeah, it's difficult. It's, it's difficult. And then, and, and, and then working with people um, who just ousted you in a way. Yes, uh, but of course, what they have is their expertise, and the sort, and, and, and my friend's work, especially there, was being the mediator between um, Western business people and Japanese companies, which is actually in Japan, I think, an extremely good policy, yeah. uh, because you really do need that sense of someone who can bridge between the two cultures. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Um, and uh, if I, if I, uh, if I may, John, the personal question: What is your biggest cultural mistake? Um, if you had one, and what did you learn from that? Yeah, there's, there's been a couple, I have to say, you know, because every year I go through all the different assignments I've had, and and, uh, and I think, oh, that went well, and that well, and then, then a couple of times they don't go well, and um, and there was one, uh, one actually, I, I can think of one. One was in Finland, mm -hmm. and uh, I love Finland, and uh, and in fact, what got me started in this whole kind of cultural. Uh, communication, it was in the early 90s, uh, someone approached me and said, look, we'd like you to go to Finland and run a course. I said, sure, that sounds interesting. What do you want me to, to talk about? Mm -hmm. And they said the subject was small talk. And I was really kind of shocked. I said, small talk? But I mean, anyone can do that, you yeah. know. And they said, well, no, not in Finland, <laughs> which I've come to learn is, is true. And the Finns are quite proud about that. They think small talk's a bit of a waste of time. So I started running these seminars. They were going great, you know. And, um, and I think simply, again, it comes down to having a positive attitude. Mm. I a lot about Finnish culture and, um, and I, I was really loving it. But there was one seminar I did for a company and it was really on storytelling. Yeah. And... Uh, What I realized was that in the Nordic countries, there's a little bit of resistance to storytelling because they think, well, you know, what you mean? You're not going to tell us about facts and information. In other words, you're going to try and deceive us or manipulate us with a story. You know, it's like the American way because the Americans are very good storytellers. Absolutely. Yeah. I think we are in Australia. You know, it's an Anglo-Saxon tradition. Yeah. The Irish, fantastic storytellers, you know, but they're not always true. I mean, that's what they're afraid of in Finland. Okay. So I was running this seminar and, and I just had such resistance there, you know, with crossed arms and these top managers from a big Finnish company. And afterwards I realized, my goodness, this was a catastrophe. And I really had to go through um, what I, you know, what, what, do I, what I missed out on. And I realized later it was really um, assuming that, you know, the stories were a universal approach to like that everyone enjoys storytelling. And, and the Finns absolutely no exception with that. But they couldn't see, the, in, particularly in this company, the connection between storytelling as a strategy for doing better business. So it really made me go back to the drawing board and think, okay, now I have to rethink this. What is it about storytelling that actually can help us mm -hmm. uh, more successful in business and, and so on. So it was an interesting lesson for me. Excellent. Thanks for sharing that. That's really good. Um, the other side of the medal, of course, I mean, if you make a cultural mistake, you can also be in a situation, you can find yourself in a situation whereby you're actually doing something really good. Um, it's, 
Can you pinpoint uh, an episode in your life when that happened, a moment? Oh, I think every time when, when you, you usually know when people want to hang around after a, a talk or a seminar, you know, and you get a lot of people hanging around. Okay, then you've said something interesting. And that's always an inspiring moment just to be able to, to kind of talk to people and say, and then and asking questions. And then, you know, you sort of, you might have said a few things and then people want to come up and say, oh, but did you know that in our country? And then, oh, really? And then you get this whole dialogue. I, I'm a firm believer in the meaningful dialogue, you know, that um, the more interaction, the more questions you can ask the more answers you get i, I love it. yeah 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 it's true it's true it's true it's, it's always good fun like that um let me think i have another yeah I, i'm going to uh, come a bit towards the uh, the the end of the um, uh, of the interview because we're um, we're approaching like 30 minutes if i'm looking at the clock right now um like two last questions I'd like to ask you and, and one question is more related to cultural differences um, I'd like to pick your brain on a number of words of wisdom so to speak okay. can you can you give the audience like three cultural tips when dealing with another culture um I think it all, it often comes down to having a positive attitude. And, and I've often come across people that where, where things have gone terribly wrong. And uh, it's, it's often people that have been involved in business and they find themselves uh, having to do work with different cultures and they've never really wanted to do that. Yeah. And I think if you don't have that enthusiasm or that sort of real interest in working with other cultures, then, then you're probably better off just not doing it. And, and it's not for everybody. Yeah. Um, because you really do have to leave your comfort zone. There is, um, I try and get to a completely new culture every year, just to in just to experience. Uh, um, it's almost a process of humiliation, you know, to be able to be standing somewhere, you know, queuing up for a bus and, and wondering well, what do I do now? You know, that feeling of almost being lost. Um, yeah. A few months ago, I was in Gambia and Senegal, and that was <laughs> completely different for me. And and and, but it was so fascinating because you do have to go around and ask people questions, and you really are at the mercy of the kindness of strangers. And, and you and, and you realize that if you're open and uh, about that, people are extremely helpful. And it's a very, it's to be in that kind of humbling position is a very much a learning position. Yeah. Um, I like that. I often ask people, you know, what, what are the, 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 what do we need in order to make our work across cultures work? And a lot of people come up with the word tolerance and, um, I thought that too until I read this interesting article in a in a psychology journal that talked about the risks of tolerance because I know in Holland people often say, oh, we're tolerant people. And I know in Australia we say the same thing. But it's not true or you know that. No, the risk of being tolerant is that um, you tend to sort of think, well, our culture is okay. Let's see and try how we can make out what your culture is about. Yeah. And, of course, a much better attitude is to be open-minded. That, that, that's That's difficult. That's really difficult. You know, you realize that too. Yeah. Because you have to start questioning, you know, because we, we grow up with this idea. I think it's part of this process of cultural priming. Uh, we grew up with this idea that our culture is the best way. And every culture has that, huh? Every culture has that, don't they? It's got, exactly. And, and sometimes you really have to start challenging yourself and thinking, oh, maybe this is a, maybe this is just a good way as well, you know. Yeah, so totally, being open yeah. is, is a wonderful attribute to have, but you really have to, you have to practice and train. And every situation you have to think, wait a minute, am I being open-minded now or just being tolerant, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Difference. 
Yeah, and 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 on this this thing about tolerance in the Dutch, uh, you would you agree that the Dutch are not really tolerant as it's being like marketed, quote unquote? Well, I've had so many interesting discussions when I was in Holland, and I, I often when I've asked Dutch people, you know, how do you define your own cultural, uh, you know, business style? Yeah. And I've heard many Dutch people say, because I must say, first of all, I have to say that I think. Dutch business people when it comes to negotiating and so on are probably the most professional people you'll meet in Europe. They're mm -hmm. always well prepared, always work in teams, they've always done their homework. Uh -huh. um, but they'll often say that, uh, well, the problem with we Dutch is that we are arrogant. And I said, oh, but how does that go together? And, and I think there is the risk that tolerance and arrogance can go together and that open-mindedness and um, being a little bit humble, they, they also go together. Hang on. Can, so can that, you repeat um, that a bit, John? Because that sort of fell between the cracks of the, uh, the, the Skype connection we're having right now. Okay, the risks of the risks of tolerance can lead to to arrogance, yeah. and I've heard Dutch people describe themselves as being arrogant, which kind of surprised me. But when you're best in class, it's always uh, there's a risk. Yeah. You know, that you can think, oh well, we can we can choose to be arrogant, uh, and that's why I think you know venturing out to a completely different culture just to relive that sense of having to be a little bit humble before. Okay, I have no idea how this works, and And I need to learn. I have to ask people and, yeah. and just experience that. Excellent. Great. Um, your third tip, if you have a third tip. Do I have a third tip? Yes, absolutely. Because positive, it's very easy to say one needs a positive attitude. But how do you get that? You know, because you can't go around just being happy all the time. Uh, and I have found that the best way is to be prepared. And um, I come back to this idea of storytelling. Mm -hmm. Uh, whenever I go to another country, um, I always, you know, read up a lot beforehand. And I think learning some of the language, I mean, you, I, I, I got by in a little bit of Dutch when I was there, but, you know, if going to Gambia, there's like four different languages in Gambia. I'm not going to be fluent in any of those. But I did learn a few phrases in each of them. And it helps. And that helps. But also just immersing yourself in stories. You know, I love watching television in foreign countries. What do people watch on TV, you know? And you learn so much from just popular culture, like in Sweden, if you want to know about Sweden, well, sure, you should know about Astrid Lindgren and Ingmar Bergman, but, but also what ordinary Swedish people are watching. You know, why is it that they're... The, the Eurovision is such an enormous uh, um, part of Swedish culture. And, uh, you know, when I was in Holland, it was the same thing, looking at popular culture. So I think understanding something of the popular culture can be enormously helpful because it's like you see that on the tip of the iceberg, but you realize it actually um, describes or defines those deeper values that have been beneath the tip of the iceberg. Uh, great tips, respect, open-mindedness and a positive attitude and then hence coming prepared and learn a little bit of um, a bit of the language that would help as well. For sure. Um, just before I ask my last question, I have one other last question if I can. That's a bit, if you can, if you can do this, a shoot from the hip uh, question. Okay. Cultural difference. You're, you're Australian. Yeah. Uh, quickly, can you quickly point out in your view, experience and, and, and professional uh, approach Difference between the Australians and the Swedes, uh, Australians and the Dutch, and the Australians and the Brits, because you've lived in <laughs> all three countries. Yeah, that's true, isn't it? Okay, here it goes. Um, it's, it's, it's interesting for me because I must say I found it easier 
in many respects, assimilating to the Swedish way of doing things from Australia than I did in England. I love England, but and my parents were English, right? So that I should have been well prepared. But um, one thing that Australia and Sweden has in common is a firm belief in the egalitarian society. Yeah. And it was a bit of a shock coming to England and realizing that there's still a way off that. You know, that there's still like um, which school you went to and which accent do you speak. And if you come from the north of England, then you speak like that. And, you know, if you drop your teas, there, there is something about England that's very much uh, stratified. Very much so. Yeah. The layers of hierarchy and the regional differences, you, that's something you, you could immerse yourself in English culture for a lifetime. It's so complex. Even though that Hofstede claims that the, the Brits and the Australians score low on power distance. Huh? Yeah, and, and, I, and this is one of my disagreements because I think um, uh, Australia, you can actually, I think, typify certain aspects of Australian corporate culture, you know, that um, we, we there it's not as egalitarian as, say, in Sweden, but there's respect for the boss. But on the other hand, we do call each other by first names yeah. and so on. Yeah. The difference in England is I think it's it's an impossible task to try and typify what is a um, an English company because uh, the whole point of being English is this individualism, eccentricity, mm-hmm. so that every English organization will try and define themselves by being different to everybody else. Yeah. Um, then that's quite different to Sweden. It's very tiring as well. (laughs) (laughs) It could be, but it's fun. How about the Dutch and the Aussies and the Dutch? I think Dutch Australians get on really well. We have a big population of um, Dutch people in in Australia. My girlfriend at school, she was from the Netherlands. I've got some family (laughs) living there. (laughs) But but also um, that sense of, uh, you know, the fair society is very important. And um, I I suppose the big difference is, I mean, not not to sort of put down Dutch people in any way, but we do have sheep stations that are much larger than the entire Netherlands, you know. (laughs) But, um, but we don't have the cultural diversity. Here's another. Here's an interesting. I, I can tell you one difference. Sure. Here in Australia, we have a country the size of Western Europe, and yet you can travel from Tasmania to Darwin to uh, West Australia to Sydney, yeah. and basically we speak pretty much the same accent, yeah. and we have the same sort of core values. And, and yet in the Netherlands, I remember once being in an account, I think I was down in Tilburg, and um, and the woman, the account I was visiting, she said, oh, where are you off to now? And I said, oh, I'm going back to, to Harlem. She said, oh, yes, the decadent north. Yeah. <laughs> and he said, oh, those people in Amsterdam and Harlem are also decadent. And, and we had this long discussion about the, the north-south split in all the European countries, you know, the Protestant north and the Catholic south. Uh-huh. And, the conservatism and you know and so on and and I, and I find this absolutely fascinating that you know in every country in Europe you can go to you'll find this kind of diversity and accents I mean I people Regions, yeah yeah it's true and and it's also true by the way that in Haarlem they, that's that's the place in the Netherlands where they speak the the absolute fluent uh, way of Dutch in terms of pronunciation no accents <laughs> whatsoever Right. Okay. So, because that's an interesting thing too, isn't it? That every country, like, is supposed to be Hanover in Germany and yeah. uh, and Oxford in England, and in Sweden it's Uppsala. You know, where you speak the, the purest Swedish, and, yeah. and that I've always found that very fascinating. In Ireland for the for the Dutch, that is. Is, is that right? Harlem for the Dutch. Yeah. I tell you where I used to love visiting was Sandford. Do you know Sandford? Yeah, the, the coastal coastal city uh, close to Amsterdam and Harlem as well. Yes, it was so strange. But, um, yeah, and, and I think this, I remember once even being in Luxembourg and asking, we had a group of bankers, and I asked a woman there, like, but Luxembourg, you're so tiny. I mean, do you have this north-south thing in, in Luxembourg? She said, oh, yes, she said. I never trust the, the southerners. They gossip too much. Awkward, eh? She was from the north. 
Okay. <laughs> yeah, with only 300,000 people uh, living in Luxembourg as, a, as the, the country. But this, this diversity in Europe, I mean, it is so fascinating. That's yeah, amazing. Maybe we should um, plan another podcast on that and just, uh, and, and just uh, talk about the, the, the regional and cultural diversity within this continent of, uh, of Europe or Western Europe. For sure. I can tell you one last thing, just before we part, Chris. The one, one thing I've always been fascinated is uh, I, I use a, a process in my courses called cultural discourse. Yeah. It's kind of looking for those words or phrases or expressions that, that you know, every country has. But you say, well, you can't really translate that. You know, like in the Netherlands, people say, oh, we have this being gazelle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Coziness, yeah. Coziness. And it's, so, it's such an interesting kind of um, – kind of interesting idea but it's very Dutch you do have to explain it yeah. and if you go to any European country you'll always find some word or phrase that you think oh we have this thing but you can't really translate it and they say well well, don't try just explain it to me and then in, in explaining it you start learning so much about the culture true yeah yeah yeah. and, and there are plenty of every, every European country has a word like that or a couple of words like that yeah very yeah. much John, it's been an, an amazing pleasure. Um, such, uh, uh, you don't say smooth talker because that's negative connotation, but I think <laughs> a really good storyteller by the way this, uh, this interview has been, uh, has been going. Excellent stories. Thanks for sharing what you've shared with us. Um, one last parting question. How can people get in touch with you? Yes, uh, I'm at um, johnalexander.se. So it's a pretty easy um Okay. Website address and my email is john at johnalexander.se. Okay. What's your preferred way of uh, for for people to get in touch with you? Yeah, email is fine. Email uh, is fine. Yes, and on the website it has that. I have another little website too called uh, logomsisu.com. And that's uh, that's where I've actually collected all these examples of strange and interesting words that you can't really translate. Um, Lagom is the Swedish word for being moderate and, you know, not too much, not too little. And it's a very Swedish word. And in Finland, they have this concept of sisu, you know, you never give up. Yeah. And I thought, what a great idea to have just the right amount of Finnish determination as a kind of Perfect. goal in life. So there Absolutely. you go, okay. All these um, uh, websites will be on the, in the show notes as well on the website culturematters.com. So you can get it there if you've, um, if you've missed it uh, while listening to this, uh, to this podcast. It's been amazing. Um, I really enjoyed the, the conversation. Thank you so much. And um, we'll definitely be in touch. I can, uh, I can feel that almost. Thanks, Chris. It's been a real pleasure. All right. Thank you, John. Bye for now. Bye. That's it for this episode. The Culture Matters Podcast, helping you understand cultural diversity better by interviewing real people with real experiences. Thank you.